Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 9. And uh, as I said, the outline says, Jesus, our provider. Now, two weeks ago, uh, a powerful cyclone swept through the city of Beira, uh, the port city of Beira in the Mozambique. Uh, this is southeastern Africa, not far from where I come from, Zambia, near there. Uh, the cyclone brought winds of more than 106 miles per hour. Uh, he has left a devastation across southern Africa. More than 2 million people have been displaced. There are dead bodies being discovered all the time around, in and around Beira. And the number of UK charities, the Disaster Emergency Committee that makes up these 14 charities in the UK, they've issued an appeal, and you'd have seen this appeal, to give money to help. Because they've gone on the ground, they are providing care and support to the displaced people. Uh, people need clean water, they need emergency shelter, they need food, and of course, health assistance. It's a terrible situation, and I don't think it's got that much coverage, frankly, because there's bread going on, and of course, we had the New Zealand shooting. Uh, even though there are more dead bodies, of course, in the Mozambique than in the shooting, of course, the shooting was uh, unique in, in the way it, of course, carried out, so it has had more, um, in that sense, perhaps more coverage for those reasons. But when you look at the pictures that have come out of Mozambique, they are heart-wrenching pictures. And as we look at them, we see people really struggling. It reminds us that we live in a fragile world, a needy world, uh, where people need provision. And all of us, actually, as we see those photographs, sense this neediness, isn't it? Yes, last night you slept in a warm bed, right? And you were able to get up, uh, today, this morning, you came. You didn't worry about shelter. Uh, you're all looking very well dressed, as it were. And uh, you, you have food in your fridge, right? And like the people battered by cyclone, I die. And yet, actually, you're not too different from them. Yes, their needs are different, but you also have needs in your life. Physical needs, spiritual needs. And you're also looking for provision in your life. And the truth of the matter is that whether we're in the Mozambique or we're in Bexley, none of us are able to provide for all our needs. No matter how rich, how powerful, how smart, how well-connected you are, you will never provide for all of your needs. And the reason is simple. We are not God. That's the reason. Only God is all-powerful, all-knowing, to be able to provide for every need we need in this life and beyond. Because some of our needs actually go beyond the grave. This is not the end. We, when we die, life continues for us beyond the grave. And only God can provide for us there in the other world. And this means that even though we have many needs in life, in fact, our greatest need is God. Because if you have God in your life, He is your provider, isn't He? And He has the capacity to provide for your every need. And the good news of the Bible is that the Almighty God Himself, the Creator of the heavens and earth, the one we read about in Psalm 139, has actually reached out to us. He has come to be your provider, to be our provider in the person of Jesus. Now, of course you hear that often. You've heard that so many times. 
Some of us are so used to hearing that, that it just doesn't hit us. And actually, frankly, it hits me when I'm out there sharing the gospel. Because if I repeat this to people in the Broadway, they're like, you're kidding me. God providing for every need? Why would he do that? If he's really God, why would he do that? It doesn't eat us, does it? That we're claiming that God, our creator, has become a provider to wretched sinners, people at war with him. It is extraordinary crime to do that, to say that. And we should ponder it. Because actually, when you talk to people outside there, it's a life-changing claim. They realize the profound implication of what you say. And I've heard it so many times, and I was thinking about this, I say, it doesn't really hit me. It is a game changer. Of course it is. And so we need to hear it afresh and listen, pay attention as we look at it this morning. Because my goal this morning is to remind you of his truth, to encourage you to look to Jesus for your present and future needs. And I want to do that by walking us through this, this passage, uh, this amazing miracle that our Lord Jesus performs here in the Decapolis. And we'll look at this. Mark chapter 8. Turn with me there, please. Uh, we'll look at verse 1 to verse 9. And there's just three things I just want to draw out which are on your outline. The first truth we learn here is that Jesus feels for our needs. Jesus feels for our needs. He feels our needs. He knows them very well. Look at that in verse 1. Jesus has been ministering in the Decapolis, hasn't he? That's why we left him uh, at the end of chapter 7. And uh, now... If you're coming at this uh, afresh, the Decapolis, as you know, is the area southeast of the Sea of Galilee. So it's somewhere in the southeast. That's why he's been ministering. That's why he healed that man who had a problem with hearing and uh, stammered, I guess, in speech a bit. He had an impediment in his speech. That's why he's been ministering. It's a predominantly Gentile area. He has some Jews, but it's predominantly Gentile. And Mark tells us in verse 1 that a large crowd has gathered around Jesus in a remote place. And they have been there with him for three days and uh, somewhere in a remote place. And they're running out of food, right? Not different from the people, I guess, in the Mozambique who don't have food at the moment in, in, around Beira. And Jesus notices the problem and he shares this problem with his disciples. Let's read verse 1 to verse 3. <laughs> in those days, when again a crowd, a, a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd, because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And if I send them away, hungry, to their homes, they will faint on the way, they will die. And some of them have come from far away. Now, this is the second time we see Jesus around there, this large crowd that is hungry. Last time we saw this was in Mark 6, right? And you remember there, it is the disciples who came to Jesus. He says, we're looking around and there are some empty, lumbering stomachs. And frankly, they felt really hungry. Why don't you send the crowd away so that they can find food for themselves? That's what the, the crowd said. They approached, that's what the disciples said. They approached Jesus with the problem. Here is the other way around. Here is Jesus who has seen the problem and is bringing up the issue. Why is that important? Because it's important to us because Jesus wants to teach the disciples that he sees the problem. He feels our needs. He knows that we need things. Look at verse 2 again. He says, I have compassion on the crowd. 
Because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. He's not saying the disciples don't have compassion. He's just saying he sees it. He feels their, their need for provision. Now, as I've noted before, I hope by now you know what the word for compassion actually means. Because I explained that in the past for those who are here. It comes from a word in the original language that literally means bowels or intestines or guts. So when we read here that Jesus has compassion, it means that he feels so deeply in his gut. He feels so deeply, he's, just, he's feeling their situation so much that it is almost like Jesus is experiencing hunger with them. He's in their shoe. It's incarnational, we might say. He feels their needs. That's what it means. He has compassion on them. Now, in 2008, Dr. Joe Salinas saw a patient have a cardiac arrest. Right? And he says immediately when he saw a patient have a cardiac arrest, he could feel, this is Dr. Joe, he, could, he says, I could feel my back on the floor and the compressions in my own chest. I felt the breathing tube scrapping down the back of my throat. This is Dr. Joe. And then, after the person was declared dead after 30 minutes, Dr. Joe says, I felt a complete absence of physical sensations. It was so haunting. It was like being in a room with an air conditioner, and then suddenly it was switched off. What's going on there? Well, Dr. Joe felt these things, you see, because he suffers from a condition called mirror touch synesthesia. It is a condition, medical condition, whereby a person mirrors other people's feelings. Anytime Dr. Joe sees someone experiencing pain, or even just a sense of touch, Joe's brain recreates the sensations in his own body. Synesthesia happens when one of your senses, any of your five senses, I guess, say earring is merged in the body with another sense, say test, rather than experiencing those tests separately as we do. So for some people, uh, when they have the hearing and their test merge, those senses, when they hear music, they feel a test in their mouth if they have synesthesia. Other people, when they see colors, when they see, when they see numbers, they see colors. Dr. Joe's merging of these senses in his body means that actually he feels, when he touches someone, he feels deeply their pain. God is great, isn't it? The way he's, he's able to give his gifts to people. Uh, it's a bit like the gift that the mantis has in Guardians of the Galaxy. You've seen the movie. And she's able to have hyper-empathy. Apparently, we are all born with this gift, by the way, from God. You may not be aware of this. It's what actually helps babies learn quickly, apparently, as they're developing early. They're able to make these amazing associations. And uh, this, hyper, this, this, this synesthesia, uh, the, the, the expostelus, is developed in 1.6% of the population. But you see, for Dr. Joe, having this hyper-empathy, this gift from God he has, was initially a huge burden for him. It can be. You can think about it, it can be. You know, to feel deeply what other people are feeling, right? But over time, he learned how to cope with it, you see. And it's actually been a great asset to, that, to him. It helps him, he's a doctor, of course. It helps him treat patients because, in his own words, he says, 
I really feel like I, <laughs> I really have a stake in their well-being. Because in that moment that I touch them, it is also my well-being at stake. That's amazing, isn't it? But imagine someone who not only feels your physical needs like Dr. Joe, but also feels your relational needs, your emotional needs, and your spiritual needs, and he feels them perfectly. Dr. Joe's feelings are quite imperfect. But imagine somebody who can feel like that. Imagine someone who feels your pain not as a burden he has mastered over time, but as, some, but as who he is. He is compassionate to the core. He is love to the core. Imagine that such a person. Well, you don't have to imagine. Because that person is the Lord Jesus Christ. When he looks at us, he can feel, he can know how we are feeling. In every dimension of our being. You see, when I speak to people about God, the main thing they tell me is this. How can I possibly live in a God who does not seem to care about my pain? Why did God take away my dad at, when I was 21 or 22? Why do so many... The other, there was a time I was in the Broadway and I was trying to use a cash machine and I was behind two ladies in front of me, right? And the daughter turned to the mother and said, why do so many bad things happen in our family? That we were facing another crisis. You know, we go through, we do everything right. We, 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 we pay our taxes. We, we, we are very good to our neighbors. But why do so much evil happen in our family? What, the, the young lady asked the mom, what, what have we done to anyone to deserve this? And people ask such questions, isn't it? If God is good, why does he let evil happen? These are honest questions. They are painful questions. And we must not dismiss them. And the truth of the matter is that there are theological answers. But the truth of the matter is even the theological answers, there are no neat answers why God allows evil and suffering. I'm happy to give you one. I think I've got a good one from the Bible, right? We discussed it in the Bible studies last time, on one of the Friday mornings. But there are no neat answers. But what I do know is that when I look at Jesus here, I can see here that God, whatever we make about evil and suffering, God is not indifferent to pain and suffering in our lives. Because here we see Jesus, God in the flesh. He's feeling the pain of the crowd. He's feeling their hunger. And we saw him in chapter 7 when he looked at that man who was blind. He sighed deeply. He felt, if you so to speak, the pain of that man. Jesus is a God who suffers with us. Who feels our pain. And we know that this is not actually the end of Jesus feeling pain. Because we know he does that because we see it on the cross, don't we? There on the cross we see again God suffering with us. He's betrayed by sinners. He's crucified by sinners for us. He shares our pain only because he knows it. But he enters our pain on the cross in a real tangible way. This is a God we serve. And the point there is, is that the point is that God is not turning away his face from your needs. Whatever needs you are facing at the moment, God is not turning away his face from them. He has come in Jesus to lovingly share your pain, to feel your needs. And not only to feel them, because what good is it just feeling the needs that they are there, but also to meet those needs. 
right? To meet the needs. And that is the second wonderful truth we observe here. That's the first, the first truth we learn here is that Jesus feels for our needs, right? The second truth is that Jesus is able to meet our needs. Let us rejoin Jesus. He has flagged out the problem to his disciples. How will they respond? They respond with the question. Look at verse 4. And his disciples answered him, How can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place? Now, there are many ways to go with their response. I concluded after much pondering over this passage that it is better not to read into their response. I think I concluded that I can't figure out really what they mean here. Mark doesn't condemn them, and you may want to condemn them, but he doesn't. Right? It's neutral response. It's not condemned even later. Right? I think what is clear to me is what the disciples don't do. The disciples do not tell Jesus to send the people away. They've learned that lesson. They could have done that. They don't do it. And, and also the disciples are not demanding for a sign. They're not demanding for a miracle here. Something we'll see the Pharisees do this evening. So they are not sending, do, they are not telling him what to do. They just pose the question. And I think this is the point that Mark wants us to see here. Mark wants us to see that what Jesus does next is not a request by anyone. It is all about him. It is all about Jesus. And beloved, that so comforts me. That so comforts me. To know that Jesus is moved by his own compassion for me. I'll come to that later, right? Jesus is doing this out of his own volition. And let's see what he does. Look with me at verse 5 then. So Jesus first, what does he do? How is he going to respond to that question? Well, he actually poses his own question again. Verse 5. And he asked them, how many loaves do you have? They said, seven. Then Jesus tells people to sit down for dinner, doesn't he? There's no food, but he tells them to sit down for dinner. Notice it's Jesus himself doing this. Last time he told the disciples to do it. Jesus is taking control of the situation. Let's read verse 6. And he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. We pause there. So he's directing them to sit on the ground, right? And then he gives thanks for the bread, the seven loaves, right? And for the bread to come, right? Which we can't see yet. Let's read on verse 6. Uh, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them. I just want to pause there here briefly. To note that Jesus gives thanks to God for the food that is already on the table, as it were. And for the food that is coming, which has not yet been provided for by God. Jesus is modeling for you and I that we are to eat food with thanks to God. The question I want to ask you this morning is, how seriously do you take giving thanks for food before you eat? Do you pray over your Nando's chicken? Do you pray over that McDonald's when you buy it and you sit down? Do you pray when you grab a sandwich at work and you have a quick bite? Do you pray when you go out to eat with non-believers and they're around the table, you've got your food in front of you, do you pause and pray? Just let them know that you are giving thanks to God. Do you live like that? Or are you embarrassed of praying in front of others non-believers? Does it embarrass you for them to know that you are a believer and you are thanking God for the provider. 
That's it. I have to say many times I've been embarrassed of Jesus like that. And I've had to repent as I've been going through this passage. I've had to realize I'm part of the problem why this country, faith is being pushed aside. Because when I'm in a public place, I won't always pray. When I'm, in a, when I'm in a restaurant, I don't always pray. I'm part of the problem. I need to repent before God if God is going to bring a move to this country. And part of the thing we can do as believers is just to give thanks to food, for the food God has given us. Wherever God provides for us food, when we are with other people who are non-believers, so they know we are trusting in the provider, not in the government. Well, you can trust Mrs. May if you want. I'm just saying. Ultimately, trust in God, right? I think some of us here need to rediscover the rhythm of saying grace before meals. Some of us don't do that. And some of us need to refresh what has become a stale religious habit. We do it, but we just do it as a habit. And I think the key for us to refresh what saying grace is that we need to ask ourselves, why do we say grace over food, as Jesus is doing I just want to say, we say grace, I think, because fundamentally it expresses our dependence on God, as Jesus is doing here. He's depending on God to provide, right? But I also think that we, we, are, we give thanks, because we are thankful for the people God has placed in our lives. Somebody prepare that food that you are going to have over lunch. It was made somewhere, right? And somebody bought it. It's probably not even you, right? And some, 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 someone who is a fantastic chef, my wife usually does this in our house. I'm a terrible cook. But my wife does this, and we have to thank God that she's prepared. I'm to thank God that she's prepared the food. Somebody cooks the food you eat. Because without them, you wouldn't be eating that food. So that's why we say grace, isn't it? But we're also acknowledging the goodness of the food itself that we eat. Jesus is acknowledging he's about to serve up a wonderful meal. The food that we eat is not just fuel for the journey. It is actually a gift that tastes wonderful in our mouths. That's reflecting God's goodness. Finally, we give thanks for food around the table because we're giving thanks for God giving us each other, isn't it? As you sit with your mom, as you with your dad, as you with your brothers and sisters, as you eat together, you're doing so with thankfulness to God. Why? Because the gift actually is the community around that. Right? And I think when we begin to recognize this, it changes the enjoyment of our food. It makes a huge difference because we realize that eating is us enjoying God, the provider. It is enjoying the food and enjoying eating with one another. So can I encourage you, just as a side point there, to follow what Jesus is doing here by giving thanks for the food that he provides. So Jesus has prayed. Let's go back. He has prayed, and now he dishes out, doesn't he? Look at this. Let's read on verse 6. Uh, he dishes out, and he took the seven loaves, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people, and they set them before the crowd. So he's using others to serve, and they are serving. And then, notice, he repeats the routine again with the fish in verse 7. And they had a few small fish, and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. And we notice in verse 8 there that the result now is amazing. And they ate and were satisfied. It's just, just like that. Jesus has provided for the people. It's an amazing miracle. And he's done it before, and he does it again. 
And this miracle is important, isn't it? Because it's teaching us that Jesus has power to meet our basic needs and all other needs in life, even the most difficult. He gives us sustenance in all its dimension in this life. Now, I don't know what you need at this moment right now. I don't know. Maybe your greatest need at the moment is emotion. You feel low and you desperately need God to lift you up. Pastor Reagan from Angel gave us that wonderful teachings on that Sunday evening. Isn't it? We feel low sometimes like that. Perhaps your need is financial. You are currently looking at your bank balance and you realize that you are facing debt problems. You need God to give you direction and help you look after people in your lives. These are real things. We shouldn't dismiss them. We need to care for our families. And perhaps you're in that situation where financially things are difficult. Maybe your need is relational. You are concerned about being single. And you want God to meet that need by providing someone. Or in, his way, in any way that God sees fit. Or perhaps you are longing for deep friendships with people your age. People who love Jesus of your own age. And you want God just to put, bring good friends in your life that would help you in that. We have many needs. Job, looking for jobs, other things that people have, even looking around here, healing for family members. We all have these needs. There are many needs in our lives. And this passage is teaching us that if you trust in Jesus, trust him with the, that he has the power to meet your needs. And he knows about them already. So go to him. Ask him to provide for your needs. Now, this does not mean that he will give you everything you ask him to do, right? Jesus is not a genie. He is our father. He is our parent. God has promised to meet our needs, not to provide for every wish. You wouldn't even want him to do that. Why would you want Jesus to just give you everything you want? You don't want that. Trust me, you don't. Because you, some of you are parents already. You know that for your children. You know, if uh, Elijah comes look wanting, you know, a, a hammer, would you, you know, give him a, a hammer truck? Of course not. He can't drive, right? Uh, it's difficult to find one anyway. But, uh, but you know, there are things that even if you can, you wouldn't provide. Because it's not good for, your, for our children. In the same way, God is a parent, isn't it? He's our father. And you, we want him to give us what he deems best. I just want to tell you this, that the more I've grown in my Christian walk over a few years, the more I thank God for unanswered prayers. I thank God for those prayers that I've prayed, even for this church, that God has not answered. Maybe I've prayed that God use this person. And God has said, no, I won't use him. And I'm like, why? And then later I realize, yeah, now I know why. Right? Oh, I pray, I pray for God to provide me with something. And then, I, and then he hasn't. And then I've said, oh God, this is what you are up to. I thank God for unanswered prayers. And to be honest, I'm at that place in my work with Jesus now where I'm saying, Lord, I don't want anything that you don't want. I don't want what God does not want for me. Because my father knows things he knows all things. He knows what's best for me. I want what Jesus wants for me. That's what I want. And I have to be honest, the more you grow in your faith, 
I'm not there yet. There's still one thing God doesn't want for me. But thank God that he's leading me to thank him every day for unanswered prayer. Because I know my goal in life is to be like Jesus. And so I just want to say, go to God with your needs and trust him to answer it in the way he sees best. And the way that works is it, this. If you, if you say, say if you are, if you are, the best example is if you're single, right? And you're praying for God to provide someone in your life. The way to, you, you, you should be willing to say, okay, God do provide someone. But you should also be open to the possibility that God's answer might be no, because I want to send you to China. And you're not going to take what? You're not going to take your wife there. You're not going to take your hubby there. It's not now. You should be willing for God to do that in your life because we want what God wants, isn't it? That's just an example, right? Or you might say, no, I'm not going to provide someone, but you know what? I'm going to provide you a church that is going to care for you as a single person because I want your issue to be the issue I use to forge this church into a real community that cares for singles. Because I know if everybody's married in this church... No one is going to think about even evangelizing to singles. So I've placed you there as a single person to forge this community into a community that loves others and cares for singles. You should be open to be used by God in that way, isn't it? So if you have a need, trust Jesus with your need. Take it to him. And you provide for him, but trust him to provide for him in a way he sees fit. Go to him confidently knowing you want what he wants uh, because you belong to him. And you can be confident that you provide for your needs because it gives us something even better. And this is our final observation here. The final observation gives us something better. What is that which is better? Everlasting abundance. I love that. Everlasting abundance. Jesus provides everlasting abundance. We see that in verse 8 to verse 9. That's the third point. The first point is that Jesus fills our needs. Okay? What's a big deal? Well, the big deal is that Jesus is able to meet our needs. That's why it's a big deal. Okay, and how can we be confident? Well, we can be confident because Jesus actually provides something better than our needs. He provides beyond our needs. He gives us everlasting abundance. So the question when we come to this is this. Why has Jesus performed this miracle, right? And the answer is found in what Mark tells us after the people finish eating the food. Let's read that. Let's read verse 8 to verse 9. And they ate and were satisfied. And they took up the broken pieces left over, seven basketfuls, not fools. Why do I always pronounce like that? It's just my seven basketful, right? <laughs> and there were about four thousand people, and he sent them away. I just want you to notice that just like the feeding of the five thousand, they are leftovers. We love leftovers, don't we? And just like before. The key to this miracle, understanding it, is the original word used for baskets here. The word Mark uses for basket, it's not obvious to you, is the Greek word is spirus, right? It is the word used for the basket. Do you remember when Paul was laid down in a basket in Acts 9, verse 25? The, the, that basket, the word used in, by Luke to describe it, is spirus. So in other words, these baskets are man-sized, as we might say, right? They can, you can lower poem, right? They are extremely large baskets where this food has been collected. 
This is different from the word, you remember. I won't ask the quiz if you remember the word that Mark used for the first miracle when he had those 12 left. The word there was kofinos, which means small-sized baskets. And I remember saying that, what's the difference there? The difference is that the first miracle was small leftovers, right? Because Jesus provided exactly what they needed. Jesus knows exactly what we need, and he provides exactly. That's what the first miracle taught us. The 12 small which were left were just like takeaway for them. He provides for us exactly and exactly through life. That's what that miracle was trying to indicate. Food for the journey, exact food for the journey. Right? That ends the 12 leftovers. Here is Spirish. Large leftovers. Wow, and there are seven of them. A number of completeness. Because it's indicating, you see, that Jesus provides everlasting abundance. More than we need. He hasn't got it wrong. We might think, surely it's good. Why can't he just give exactly? Praise God he doesn't give exactly, right? He gives us grace upon grace. More than we need. And this is the key to this meaning of this miracle. And this is why it's different from the previous one. Because why I just done this was to fulfill the words God gave Isaiah 700 years ago. Before Jesus, concerning the reign of God. Turn with me to Isaiah 25, verse 6 to verse 9. It's a very important passage. It says this. We have to read it. It says this. On this mountain, the Lord of us, Isaiah 25, 6 to 9, the Lord of us will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged well refined, of aged wine well refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. You see, when we look at this feeding of the 4,000, Mark wants us to read this miracle and immediately think of the feast that Isaiah talked about. The one where God himself is a heavenly chef. He's hosting these people. And notice he's not just hosting Jews. He's hosting Gentiles. It's a feast for all the people. But did you notice something there in Isaiah? What is God eating? Did you notice what God was eating? God swallows up death, pain, and suffering. That's cardinal, isn't it? Look at verse 8. He's eating. You swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from their faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth. For the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him, that he might save us. Now, as we think about this miracle in the Decapolis, we don't see Jesus eating death, swallowing up death. That is because this feast of the 4,000 actually is a trailer to the main feast on the cross. It is on that mountain of, of Golgotha, on that hill, 
where Jesus is nailed to that cross of wood. And there he dies to pay the price for our sins. That is why the Lord's table is a memorial meal that looks back to that feast on the cross. And we know that Jesus' death was not the, was not the end, was it? After three days, he swallowed up death, didn't he? In victory, by powerfully rising from death. And by so doing, by eating death, so to speak. Warren tells us that when we think of the cross, it is the death of death in the death of Jesus Christ. Because Jesus rose, you see. And if we're in him, we have new life. If we trust him, we have new life in him. If you live in Jesus now, God is now forever your provider. You have everlasting abundance. And it is everlasting because the cross again is only the beginning. Jesus is coming again, isn't it? To usher in the new heaven and new earth. And guess what Revelation 7, 16 to 17 says? It says this, They shall hunger no more. Neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them, nor any scorching it. Why? For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. He will guide them to springs of living water, and God will wipe every tear from their eyes. Exactly the same words we read in Isaiah. And here is the point, beloved. This feeding of the 4,000 is a picture of this everlasting abundance. And satisfaction that is in store for us who have new life in Jesus. And can you think of what's happening at this precise moment? For 2,000 years now, Jesus has been preparing this heavenly banquet for us. It took him a fraction of a second to feed the 4,000. Imagine what sort of banquet, abundance, he has in store now for us. He's been at it for 2,000 plus. Imagine what our future will look like. We can't imagine it. We can't, because the Bible says so. Paul says, no human mind can conceive the things God has prepared for those who love him. Beloved, in this life we lack many things. You are lacking many things now. God knows that. Jesus feels your lack. But if you are in him... This miracle shows you that you have all you need and much more. Grace upon grace. Everlasting abundance is ahead of you. So let this drive you to your knees with thanks. Let this bring perspective to your priorities in life. Let this be what drives your every decision. That you are holding everlasting abundance in Christ. Isn't this Vision what has driven people like John Chow to share the gospel to the centuries. Is this not the fire that burned in John Chrysostom as he preached the gospel in the face of so much persecution? Why? Because he had the treasures of heaven ahead of him. Everlasting abundance. Allow this truth to shape everything you do. Know that in Jesus you have this. And be thankful to God for it. Thank him every day for such a great future. But sadly, of course, not everyone here can truly say Jesus is their provider. We should be clear that not everybody will enjoy 
everlasting abundance that awaits us. This is only for those who have truly surrendered to Jesus. Be, be sure the Pharisees did not enjoy uh, were not a man that would, well, be sure the Pharisees, even though they were present, they were not, they are not counted for everlasting abundance. We'll see that this evening. They perished in unbelief. At least most of them did. Not everyone gets to enjoy this everlasting abundance. Only those who can truly say with Clement of Alexandria, Jesus is the incomparable prize of those who seek him. Only those who can truly say, he is my great prize. He is my life. He is my everything. And the question we have to ask ourselves, beloved, this morning is this. Do you have this relationship with Jesus? Are you trusting in his blood shed on the cross? Are you leaning only on his grace? Has Jesus given you a new heart? Do these heavenly things excite your heart? Do they move you with thanks and joy to him because they speak such wonderful truths? And you can't wait to see Jesus face to face. Do you see this evidence in your life? Are you growing in loving Jesus? And are you growing in loving his people? Are you becoming like him? As I read the Puritans, I am amazed that among many subjects the world is obsessed with, one of them seems to me to strike me more. Self-examination. Even the neo-Puritans like Jesse Ra, chapter on self-examination. Shannock in his volumes, self-examination. Many of that seems to be their obsession, self-examination, examining yourself. Why? Because they are seeing that they saw the truth of God. There is a danger among many of us not to look critically in the mirror of God's word and ask ourselves, are we standing in the faith? Do I have a new heart? Do I see it? I want to encourage you to end that it's great having Jesus as our provider. And therefore, if we are in him, we must rest in him. Because if we are not really resting in him, well, what awaits us is not everlasting abundance. What awaits us is everlasting punishment. May our Lord Jesus help each one of us in this place, beloved, to place full confidence in Jesus as our provider and to look to him for our needs. And may he help us to rejoice in the everlasting abundance that he has given us. Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for your grace and mercy that you have so sensationally lavished on us. What a joy it is to have you as our king, as our provider. And we pray, Lord, that this miracle, which we have read many times, we may remember it, apply it to our lives, that we may see in Christ that we truly have in you, Lord Jesus, all that we need. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.